church that you've decided to place here in Ormond Beach called Riverbend Community Church. We believe, Lord, that you call people to the church. You gather them. We're not merely just to be takers and and those who maybe hold down a seed, but we are to be members. The Bible says we are vital members of a body that works together with Christ as the head. So, Lord, may we take our role as being involved with this church seriously. Lord, you're serious about the local church. It's your bride. It's your wife. You love it. And so, Lord, may we take that serious. May we see the precious ministry, the precious organization of the church as like you do. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you forgive us and you help us walk with you daily, Lord. I pray as we go through today's message, Lord, that you will both challenge, encourage us, maybe, maybe rebuke in some cases, Lord. Let us know, Lord, that you are always bringing us back to truth. You want us to be right with you. And so strengthen us in a difficult uh, passage, Lord, today. Father, I'd be remiss if I didn't pray for our missionaries. Spoke with many of them this week. Lord, give them strength. Some of them are suffering, Lord. Help us to be reminded of them. To remind it that the ministries of Riverbend and missions and schools don't go on without our giving. And we're a vital part of these lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless them, strengthen them, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would raise individuals up from this ministry. May the Bible college and seminary be part of that, Lord. Give people the desire to see missions go forth around the world. Lord, it's easy to stay home. It's easy to do nothing. That's not what you've called us to do, Lord. Strengthen us for these tasks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God's design for singleness and marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 6 to 11 is our passage. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open it there. Follow along verse by verse as we begin to dive into this text, challenging as it is. One of the great blessings I've had in the ministry for many years is doing memorial services. Hayward spoke of a service he was part of yesterday. Memorial services are both hard at time because we lose someone, but at another time it really reveals in a lot of ways, especially if they're handled right, who this person was. There have been some services I've been to, none that I have conducted, that I wasn't sure who that person was they were talking about. But that's not the goal. The goal is to accurately describe the, the life of someone. In two different instances, I was asked to do a memorial service for two elderly pastors, men who were both in my life for certain uh, stints of time. I was very honored um, to do their services. These are men who were married 60 to 70 years, served in the ministry 50-plus years, and to do their services were amazing. One particular man was pastoring in a little town called Red Bluff, California, His dear wife passed before him, and I did her service as well. But when Al died, he was a very special man. I had spent a lot of time with him, and particularly in the time of my ministry where I needed his uh, elderly advice. Every day I would meet him, he would say, I've been married to Gene, and he would say this. He'd say the years, the days, the months, and the hours this is a six, I think he was 65 or 67 years married. So we said it when he died <laughs> uh, at the service. These men were dedicated to marriage. 
I asked them many times, both these, another man named Harlan, who had a tremendous ministry for many, many years that I, I was able to do his service. I asked both these men, I said, what was marriage like in the ministry? Hard. <laughs> they were honest. Marriage is hard. We have our own sin natures. Our spouses have their sin natures. There's constantly learning to die to self, but it is the word of God spending time in it that breaks our hearts and creates a union in a marriage that honors God. At the same time, I've had an opportunity through many years of ministry to meet many people with a true gift of singleness. And I'm going to explain the gift of singleness. It might not be what you think it is. But these were men and women who would come to me and serve in ways that were so amazing. They would often take on things that married people couldn't quite get done. They didn't have the time in their schedule. They were raising children. They often served in unique ways. One particular man, his name was John, told me, he says, Scott, God has removed some of the desires that I probably should have. And he's given me a freedom just to serve the Lord. Several missionaries through the years I've met who are overseas would say, Scott, I, I, I can't quite explain it, but God has given me this intense desire for the serving the Lord in a calling somewhere. And he has suppressed in a way those desires for intimacy and marriage and so forth. And they would praise God because they were able to serve in such a way. Throughout the years, I've also seen marriages that were absolute train wrecks. More problems and corruption in their marriage than you could imagine. Multiple adulterous affairs, abuse. And yet on many occasions, a good handful that I could, that I could reaccount, and I even wrote their names in my notes to thank the Lord for them, I watched God heal disastrous marriages. Marriages that, that I don't even like to reaccount the difficulties that they had. And all this taught me that the power of Christ and his word is unstoppable. Can change the hardest hearts. Can soften where ground seems unplowable. And it can return hope to the hope. I would encourage you, if you're in here and you're going to hear a, a difficult passage this morning, don't give up. Don't give up. Stay in this. We represent Christ in the church. God loves you and he loves marriage. He loves singleness. He gifts people with these. So let's handle these the way God has asked us to handle them. Oh, not the way the world handles. Well, let me give you four thoughts. Three will come right out of the text, and the last one is application. Three thoughts right out of the text, and the last one will think about how to apply these things. Number one, the gift of love that grants contentment in all circumstances. We must believe that God's love that is given to us, clearly articulated through his son's love his love for us, sending his son to demonstrate that love on the cross, we must believe that there is possibility to have contentment in all circumstances because God loves us. We must believe that. And Paul is trying to address this. He's addressing this with a church that has many difficulties. A church that has 
lived in immorality in many cases, lives in the central center of immorality in a, in a city, but yet in their own church they have experienced great immorality. And Paul is here preaching to them, helping them, answering these statements that they're making, correcting their false teaching, their false thinking, so that they'll honor God with their lives, both in marriage and in singleness. I want to pick it up in verse 6. I dropped off here last time with a short explanation of 6 and 7, and then we'll move to 8 and 9, 10 and 11, and then wrap it up. Verse 6 and 7 say this, But this I say by way of concession, not command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Well, verse 6 here is referring back to what he's just taught about marriage. And I believe Paul is saying that he's aware of the, of the goodness of being single and celibate. He understands that personally. He is single himself now. And, and he's linking, remember we talked about this last week, we talked more to this week. On, he's linking singleness, the gift of singleness, with celibacy, not living an immoral life. But Paul also knew the responsibilities of marriage. He understood that. And he wants the church to know that he has not commanded every believer to be married, right? He's not commanding every believer to be married here. But at the same time, he understands that marriage was instituted by God and is God's design. And in God's design, as we talked about last week, is a husband and wife are to share mutual intimacy for each other. These are not to be used as manipulation or tools to hurt. They're there to enjoy one another and the blessings of marriage and honor God with that. But no way was he requiring all believers or anyone else to be married, right? The church, one of the issues that's coming out of the church of Corinth is they're telling people to be either divorced and be single again or be celibate in their marriage, completely contrary to the word of God. So Paul wants them to know, look, in no way am I telling you you have to be married. I believe Paul's point is that if you're single, that's great. If you're married, that's great too. Stay as you are. If married, return to normal, biblical intimacy that God granted the marriage to have. If you're single, that's great as well. But don't look to your marriage or your singleness as, as a standard of spirituality that you're greater than someone else. Paul is really hitting this hard. Now notice verse 7. Here we see in this verse that Paul is expressing a real genuine wish here. It's not an imperative, right? So it's not a command. He's, this is a wish. And he's instructing that although marriage is a gift of God and it's good and commendable... Not every person is to be married. Or, or not every person's even to be seeking marriage. He's, he's not unaware of the trying tensions, right, that are in both marriage and singleness. I think he's experienced both. I'll talk about that in a minute. But though Paul's preference is, because he's given a preference, he is no way like the Corinthians do, is he making this some kind of law? Or, or some kind of way to make yourself more spiritual. 
See, there's always a temptation to see someone like Paul, a leader, and say, well, he's single, so I'm going to be single. Because, he, boy, he's greater. Gene and I were in the early homeschooling movements. Um, and we kind of took a lot of the abuse of people going, oh, you know, that's terrible. How can you do that? Now it's much more accepted. Sometimes when we see when a leader decides to do something, people do it because they're doing it. There's people I met with, and I said, they said, we're going to homeschool because you and Gino homeschool. I said, I don't think you even love your kids, let alone homeschool them yet. We've got to do some work. Right? There's a problem in the marriage. So we've got to do some work there. So Paul is concerned that they're, they're going to follow him just because he is, because, hey, he's an apostle and so forth. He does not want to act like the Corinthian church that's trying to lead people to some spiritual higher plane because of their status, married or single. Now, notice it says each man has his own gift from God. Well, some of the translations neuter the adjective here, meaning um, they, uh, it's not male or female, but the original Greek clearly is masculine. And I think that's because Paul's using himself as an example here. So, but the statement truly applies to both men and women. And notice here, notice in this verse that it's a divine gift. Paul calls it a gift. Each man has his own gift. And see, this is in just sharp contrast to those who are using their relationship, their relationship status to show that they are greater spiritually than someone else. See, I believe firmly that Paul does not want to rob God of his decision how he gifts people. He may gift you with singleness. He may gift you with marriage. And Paul does not want to get in the way of that. And think about this, brothers and sisters. Your relationship is a divine gift from God. Notice that little prepositional phrase, from God. This is from God. What's your status right now? Think quickly. Married, single, divorced, widow, widower, whatever it is, God has put you in that position. It is from God. And Paul recognizes that. Now let's talk about singleness for a minute here. Is Paul talking about singleness, or is he talking about how singleness is handled? There's a big difference here. And many have tripped up not interpreting this right. Is he talking about celibacy, meaning moral purity while being single, or just being single? Now, Paul, he wants to deal with this. He's gonna, we're gonna hit this. He's going to hit this a little harder in 8 and 9 as he transitions to that. And then he's going to talk about it again in 26 and 20. Uh, through 38. But Paul is talking about singleness in the truest biblical state that a person who is single honors God morally with their singleness. That's what he's after here. See, Paul is arguing, he's, he's arguing that the gift of singleness, celibacy, is the truest sense in not merely just being alone. I think some people think, well, singleness is just being alone. No, he's, he says it's much more than that. It's a singular gift of freedom from desires that would lead you into sin. God wants you to have that, to exercise that. Now, true singleness and celibacy is a gracious gift from God. He grants singles the ability to say, God, it's hard, but I trust you. I want to live in a, in a life of purity with you. Now, he's contrasting this because the Corinthians were using celibacy in marriage. So he's saying singleness is where celibacy 
is supposed to be. Remember, we talked about this last week. There were those leading women, most likely, were saying, well, if you're going to remain married, if you're going to choose to do that, then you shouldn't have sex because all, all sex is immoral, immoral. And this false teaching was coming out of there. See, Paul's contrasting. He's putting celibacy back where God designed it to be. And Paul, Paul says absolutely not is celibacy for marriage. It's for singleness, and it's a gifting by God. Now, at the same time, the context makes it difficult to avoid the conclusion that the sexual life of a married person is also a gift from God. And it's not to be neglected, as we worked on last week. So he says, look, both singleness with this God-given strengthening to, to, to pursue a more uh, a purity and morality that honors God, and this gift of marriage to handle intimacy just between the man and wife, the husband and wife, the man and woman, to honor God with that, these both are a gift from God. And that's his goal. Paul's arguing this in a present context right here because he's affirming this, which has been so confused by false teaching coming out of Corinth. Now, this is why Paul says this over and over. Stay as you are, stay as you are, stay as you are. Because he doesn't want you to forfeit the gift that God has given that person, whether that be singleness to, to handle um, their morality in a godly way or a giftedness of marriage to handle their intimacy in a godly way. So he, he's saying this, that, that you and I would not trip up, we would not misrepresent biblical singleness and biblical marriage in any way. Now, I think the church has suffered or caused some suffering through wrong interpretation here. And I think both men and women have suffered in their intimate relationships because of the abuse of text, particularly this text. And I talked about that last week. But singles have suffered as well because the church has told them that they have the gift of singleness and Yet God has not maybe given them that gift, that ability of freedom just to be able to say, you know, I'm going to the mission field. I'm, uh, God's really suppressed the, the desire for sexual intimacy. They may have not done that, but often church people come up to a single person and say, well, God's giving you this gift. And they're struggling with that. And so you can see how that could be abusive. And, and so they have been told just to accept it when God maybe is teaching them dependency on him right now. Maybe he has someone for them in, in time. So we must be careful with this. Then there are those who truly have the gift of singleness, the celibacy for God's glory, and God's liberated them from those overwhelming desires that many of us have and desire relationship within marriage. And yet people come up to them and say, oh, darling, you just got to get married. Well, wait a minute. Do you know what God's doing in their life? Be careful with these statements. And they'll say, well, we're going to look because we have to take apart this verse to burn, this passionate burning. We'll have to try to understand what that means because they're, 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 they want to be God in a way and they want to make sure that this person isn't burning with passion and let's get you married so that you don't fall apart. And yet God may have been giving them great contentment. So in the context, we have the Corinth church 
those who are individuals that think they're more spiritually superior by practicing celibacy were to be married while, while they're married. And so uh, there's all these confusing views of what marriage is, and Paul's using this argument here to straighten this out. Now, the problem in the church has been long, um, has long been taught wrong out of this passage. I went all the way back to Augustine. Augustine taught that he believed sex was because of the fall. And, and many theologians um, put it towards procreation only. That's what God gave it, to after, gave it to us after the fall. Puritans and even beyond that. Others have treated, and this is where we get back to the church and some of the damage of this passage, is others have treated sex as a privilege for the husband and a duty to the wife. Now, if you were here for last week's sermon and you listened to it, you can clearly see that that was never, never God's intent. It is this mutual love shared together. So Paul is categorically denying this in these passages. He's teaching mutual oneness in this intimate relationship that we have with our spouses. He provides a way so we don't defraud one another and, and not manipulate one another with these beautiful relationships God has given us. And that happens too often. Something that God has given so precious to a marriage or something given to a single that is so precious that can bring him great glory often gets abused. I was thinking about a, another older pastor who told me something a long time ago about intimacy. He said one of the problems that we have in our churches today is that people who are married have not learned to touch each other's soul regularly to nurture the heart with the truth of God's word. And so in the end, their physical relationship begins to destroy and die. See, Paul's trying to bring us back to what glorifies God. As a husband and wife, we should be intricately involved with discipling one another, caring for one another, ministering to one another through the word of God. That's what stimulates this physical intimacy that follows that because we're together loving Jesus and growing in that. Instead, often, the soul is never touched, but the body is desired much more. See, the love of Christ and the gospel can overcome our failures. I really believe that. If you failed in some of these areas, and I... I know this is intense. Believe me, I've been studying hours to try to get my mind around and understand this passage. And I know because I've counseled and counseled many years, and I realize that there, there are people that have failures in their life, and they're hurt, and they're struggling, and they're hurt by spouses. The love of Christ and the gospel can do what nothing else can do. I would encourage you. God can make things pure again. He heals. Pursue God's truth. Pursue his word. So I, I pray 1 Corinthians 7 is already clearing up some difficulties in your mind and heart as we went through it last week. I pray 1 Corinthians 7 is stirring you to exercise your gift from God, whether married or single. Because believing in our hearts and practicing, listen, learning to practice the Bible, Learning to do what the Bible says, oh, it'll create great relief and it'll take sorrow and turn it to joy. I promise. So seek to obey these passages. 
Seek to obey where you've been disobedient. Uh, we can't, as a, as a pastor counselor, we can't look into your heart. You have to tell us where you've been disobedient. Be honest with God. Don't blame shift. Repent from your own part, your own failings. And so often we're trying to fix our spouses when God wants us to be right with him. And he'll strengthen you. And he'll deal with your spouse. If you're single, God's will is for you to be morally pure and honor him with your singleness. That's the gift of singleness. That you do what the rest of the world doesn't. You honor God with your singleness. You honor him as you, as you, by God's grace, work through this gift of freedom at this point right now. You may have it for a lifetime. You may have it for a little while. But you're, you're, you're able to trust God and not live like the rest of the world that pursues sexual fulfillment in pagan ways. If you believe he's not asked you, singles, to have this gift for a lifetime? Ask him to teach you to be content. Ask him to help you live a life that honors him so that you'll be in a position when God grants you marriage that you will have no doubt that this is the man or the woman God has put in your place. And then just one more charge to the church. Be careful what you say to one another. We always don't know what God is doing. Don't make judgments about things. Don't say things to young women who may be going through something very difficult or learning to trust God and an offhanded comment hurts. Maybe ask them how you can pray for them. How you can help them. Have singles into your home. Minister to the crossroads ministry. See ways that you can serve this group as they strive to honor God in their morality as singles and as they wait on the Lord to bring that special someone into their life. Oh, let's not... It's not bringing defeat to them, Lord. Let's help them. Second thought this morning is out of verses 8 and 9. Celibacy is for singles, and burning desire will rob your gift and the gospel. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now we get into some intense verses here. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I. But if you do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, now Paul is going to take up a series of, of situations. He's going to remind the Corinth readers that they are all in their situation to remain as they are instead of seeking some ascetic life to gain some higher spiritual position. And so many, again, have misinterpreted 8 9 as some begrudging position that well, I just better get married so I don't burn because of my passions. Well, there's so much more to this. But notice who he's addressing here. We have to figure this out. He says, but as to the unmarried and to the widows. Well, Koine Greek does not, first of all, have a word for a male, a widower. You know that. The Bible has lots to say about widows. Um, there's much in the Bible that has to do with them. But I think Paul has chose a word that gathers in a larger group. Notice that he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 5 clearly explains what a widow is. And we have lots of words on that. Deacons are told to care for them and, 
and so forth. There's tremendous there. But, but Paul uses this unique word. It's an interesting word for the unmarried here. It's only used in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's used four times. And I believe he's gathering in the single. He's gathering in the separated. separated. He's gathered in the divorce. And he's gathering in the male widower. Now, I believe Paul is using this to help those who are in single some way or another to understand how to conduct themselves. He calls his instruction good, notice this. And it's good because it's biblically right, it's morally right for those to celebrate, um, those in the category of single to be celebrate, just as Paul was. Now, one of the questions may come, and I've asked, been asked this question a lot, was, was Paul married? And if so, where is she at? Well, you can do quite a bit of reading on that. You're not going to find much to help you answer in the Bible. But the early church fathers believed that Paul was married at one time. First Corinthians, uh, Philippians chapter 3 tells us that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and so forth. And so as we study Jewish history, um, it seems undoubtedly that Paul probably was married to another woman in a Pharisee family. Now the question is, what happened to her? Well, we don't know. Um, some theologians believe she died. Um, some believe she divorced him and left him when, she followed Jesus, when he followed Jesus Christ. Well, there's just no way to know that. But what Paul's point is, is I understand both. Verse 7 says, I know what it's like to be single and I know what it's like to be married. I understand both of these and I wish that you were as I because there's greater opportunity here, he thinks. And we'll see more of that as he develops it. But regardless how Paul lost his wife, his purity as a single person is a, is a biblical mandate. He, he's, he wants you to understand the joy of that. Now, obviously, many singles reject this in today's world. Um, young people don't want to get married because they'll say this, I can't imagine only sleeping with one person the rest of my life. That's common said. If you talk to our young people, they'll tell you this. That's how they look at life. Uh, life is about exercising your, your pleasures. But that's not all, because the Bible here is addressing widows and quite possibly, as I believe, widowers. Six, seven years ago, an article came out in the New York Times that said the, the leading place with STDs, sexually transmitted disease, in America in the tightest group of people was found in the villages. What this tells you, which this tells you, is Paul is addressing sexual immorality from a young single person all the way to those who are older. And he sees this as a problem, doesn't he? And he knows that the will of God is sanctification. That is, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 5, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he says each should have his own, possess his own vessel in, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles do. So he's, he's addressing this broad group of single people, maybe from young to older. And, and if, if they're single, he wants them to know that purity in their relationship glorifies God. And Paul said, this is good. This is a good thing. But notice in the next verse that Paul articulates a, a very genuine exception 
Namely, that if these single people are not content because they maybe don't have that lifetime gift of freedom for, from sexual desire, they are to marry. Look at verse 9. But if they say they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, for many Christians, verse 9 has been a great stumbling block, right? The struggle seems to be that the Bible is arguing in verse 8 that singles should stay as they are, right? He says, remain, remain as you are, as even as I. But then all of a sudden, Paul says in verse 9, he makes an allowance, an exception for, mess, uh, for marriage for those who are not content. So, so what's he doing here? What's he, what's he getting after? Well, what Apostle Paul is exposing, I want you to get this, this is such a key to this is that some of the singles in the Corinth church were acting just like some of the married people who were living out adultery and fornication and immorality of chapter 6. So what Paul is doing is now saying, when he, when he addressed the married people, if you notice in verse 2, he said, but because of immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife should have his own man. He's saying the same thing about singles. See, for, for it, the marrieds in Corinth, many of them were not acting godly. They were involved in extramarital affairs. They were living pagan godly lives. But now he turns his attention to these singles and says, look, you're, you're living just like the marrieds are. You're just doing it in your singleness. In fact, we know that prostitution and many forms of fornication were so heavily um, encouraged in Corinth that many people were involved in this. So no matter what your marital status is, God wants you to please him with it. That's what he's after. He's, he's taken on the married, married, and now he's turning to the single, whether it's a young person all the way to a widower. He wants that person to live for God. He wants Jesus Christ to be seen in that great penalty paid for our sin to be our motivating factor. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. I was reminded of this text. One of our dear brothers in seminary preached on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 and following. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is just Paul's love for the church, isn't it? His church is in Colossae. We know he hasn't even been to this church physically, but he loves them. He's writing to them. And he says, I ask that you be filled with all knowledge of his will, God's will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says this. Now, now think about this. Married, single, that should take in every category right here, right? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now then he adds, if that isn't enough, he adds another phrase. To please him in all respects. To please him in all respects. And so our goal as married people, let's start with us, married people is in every aspect of our marriage is to please God. From the kitchen to the bedroom, to the workplace, to the vehicle drives, wherever that may be, we are to strive by the help of the Spirit, through the teaching and instruction of the Word of God, through the power of the gospel, we are to live lives pleasing to God. But then Paul turns around and says, O singles... You're watching all this happen. You've actually seen some bad examples in Corinth 
of these married people who are involved in immorality, living in a, a godless pagan way outside their marriage, but you too, you too should turn from that. And you should live in a way that's pleasing in every aspect. Back to our text, in verse 9, he says this phrase, it's better to marry than to burn. Well, the metaphor there is, um, it's got to be two ways. It's really been taken two ways uh, throughout the church history. The first way is, some have said, well, it's about judgment. People who live in sexual sin and don't handle it right, they're going to burn in judgment. And there's been great sermons given on that, and churches have taught that for a long time. But judgment seems to be missing from the text here. And nowhere in this immediate text do we see Paul talking about the judgment of God. The second understanding, and where I land, is that it's burning with desire, I think is the appropriate translation of this and too many christians have have misread this and they cast judgment unto others but what he's meaning is is real live desires that are there how do we deal with those desires so i believe paul intends that those who are single who are who are unfortunately living out sexual sin in chapter six Paul is encouraging them to turn from that sin, seek marriage, lest they, they destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ through sinful behavior. Now, the term to burn is also used in Paul's second epistle as he writes to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Who is weak without being weak? Then he says, Who is led into sin without not my intense concern? Same word. Paul says, I am burning in concern for you that you live a life that honors God. So now, as we look at this passage, I don't think Paul is offering marriage as a, redeem, a, 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 a remedy for some inflamed youth that can't, can't, can't stop falling into sexual sin. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's encouraged, he's encouraging marriage to be understood as a proper alternative to those who, who maybe have not been given that gift. Understanding that, well, I'm just going to be single because I, that's the best way to live. He's saying, no, there's an alternative so that you don't discredit God, so you don't discredit the gospel. I, God has given alternative. See, too, too many young people are growing. Have you seen where marriage is down now? There's, there's less people married, less people marrying than ever. And it's because they, they look at it and they see it as something tying them down. They don't want that. They don't get to sow their oats as they want, so to be said. But Paul's saying, no, listen, there's an alternative. This isn't a, this isn't a, a, a convent of some. God has given the opportunity that if he hasn't granted you this freedom from these sexual desires, he has an opportunity to marriage, but you've got to come his way. You've got to honor your life right, and he will bring that about. And so the inflamed sexual pervert needs to repent. 
That's not what this passage, it's not about, well, I, I have these desires, I can't handle it, so I'll just get married. No, he's, he wants that, that person to repent, but he's giving hope to those who are single. God has a plan. He will bring someone into your life, but you must obey him, not live like the world. Now, don't forget the context here. Corinth is smack dab in the middle of immorality central. In the middle of all that, there's these spiritual elites telling everybody to be celibate because you're going to be more spiritual. And so Paul teaches that sexual intimacy is a gift from God for married people. Sex is a beautiful thing in, in, in the confines of marriage. But outside of marriage, it's Satan's tool. <laughs> right? So this burning is, is linked to how Satan loves to lead people down the path from pornography to to, to sexual immorality, that all begins in the heart and mind. That's where it begins to burn. That's where those desires become greater than Jesus Christ, and Paul does not want that to happen. So I believe Paul is urging singles and formerly married to remain in the state of purity. Do you get that? See, that's different than what we've said, um, oh, you have the gift of singleness, you have the gift of marriage. He's saying singles, just like he told married people to be pure in their marriage and their relationship with their husband and wife, he's telling single people to stay in the state of purity until God changes that. That's a big difference, isn't it? He recognizes that it's good that God brings someone along. Now, listen, this is a strong exposition to the formerly married here or the singles. It is to be content without sin. And he's seeking to expose that. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. If you're single in here and you're wrestling with sexual sin, you've got to turn to the Lord and you've got to get some help. Because God has a plan. He can take you through those things. And this is why he writes in such strong ways. And I, listen, I believe God's kindness grants marriage to those who who really desire it. He, if, if you believe God really desire it, be faithful. Be faithful to God in your singleness, and, and God possibly in time will give that to you. Third thought. Strive to keep the unity of marriage because the gospel and God hates divorce. Because of the gospel and God hates divorce. Look at verses 10 and 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does, she, sh she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Well, now the apostle takes a, a second series of really derivatives here. He's, he's a next set. He's done with marriage. He's been talking about marriage and intimacy between a husband and wife, a man and a wife, um, and their, their relationship. Now he's talked about singleness, and now he's going to deal with those who are married and how they should remain married. Now, just as they're not to practice celibacy within the marriage that he's dealt with, so they are not to dissolve their marriages through divorce because they desire some kind of spiritual superiority. This is what the Corinthian group was teaching. So Paul continues to address both men and women but notice again, he chooses to deal with women first. And again, this is this uprising, we believe, within this church of a group of women who is preaching this ascetic life. And they're absolutely, it's very clear, they are positive. <laughs> I believe they're suggesting women to leave their husbands over this status. 
So now, now what the apostle's going to do is he's going to turn to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember that though we see this section here, there, there is a fuller section of what divorce and separation, how God and what God allows for. So now, now we remember that, that Jesus and the apostles have established this. So Paul is going to deal with this specific situation in Corinth. But what he does is amazing. He brings them back to what the Lord says. Notice he says, not I, but the Lord. So Paul is speaking about this particular heresy in Corinth. And he has the right. He could have said, look, I'm an apostle. I could do this. But instead, he defers, he appeals to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this often in a lot of ways. Paul will quote things like this. He'll say, it's better to give than receive in Acts chapter 20. But we can never find where the Lord said that. So he, he, he certainly has some divine revelation that he's met with the Lord. The Bible in Galatians says that he spent three years with the Lord in the desert. And so we, we know he has that. He's received direct revelation from the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. But then there's other times where the other apostles have helped him out on some things. They've said, this is what the Lord said. Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem, became acquainted with Cephas, with Peter. And I stayed 15 days with him. So there's times where Paul receives some direct revelation and some indirect revelation from the apostles. Now, if somebody says to you and says, Hey, Jesus told me this, you should run away from him. This, this is the apostle Paul here. But notice the authority that Paul places on the words of Jesus. He says, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. So I think what he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm going to take a back seat to the voice of the Lord here because I'm hoping the Corinthians will listen to him because they're not listening to me. So Paul steps aside and he lets Jesus speak. Now what he's doing here is he's most likely referring to one of two passages. He's referring to Matthew 19, which would have been written by this time. Or he's referring to Mark 10, that maybe he got directly from Peter, who worked with Mark later on to write this epistle. In both chapters, in Matthew 19 and Matthew 10, Jesus is approached by these Pharisees, and they're there to test him. And they question Jesus on the subject of divorce and then the prevalence of it. That's the whole context there. And what Jesus does, he immediately takes them back to the Father's teaching. He takes them back to Genesis 1:27, And there he reminds them that God created the husband and wife. He created the male and female. And then he takes them directly to Genesis 2:24 and reminds them that God made them male and uh, man and woman to leave their parents. He, he, he's created this marriage in that they were to have this incredible unity and they were to be one, uh, discover this great oneship that God had given them. Now, after Jesus does all that, because th this is what he's referring back to. He's referring back to this teaching of Jesus. Jesus does something remarkable in this passage. He adds his own comments after clearly saying that God has created them male and female. God has put them together. And then Jesus does this. He says, whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. See, Paul's been talking about remain as you are. So he's bringing them back to his instruction, let no man separate them. Or in the old King James, let no one put them asunder, right? 
And then farther on the passage, as he's talking to his disciples, because they're pressing him a little farther, they want to know a little more information, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. So Paul now is referring back to the author and designer of marriage to address the sinfulness of Corinthians, because that's what they're doing. They said, look, I'm going to I'm going to divorce this person so that I can be more spiritual. And Paul says, that's not God's plan. That's not God's plan. And he lets Jesus' words speak. They would have known this. Now, it should be noted that Paul addresses the wife first here. But in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, the man is addressed. And I think, again, it's because of the difficulties that are arising from these influential women in Corinth. Now look at verses 10 and down. There's a couple words that I want to make sure we work through here. Notice the verbs that are in here. Um, leave or separate. Verse 10. It's a, it's, it's, it's a Greek word. Corzo. The next, next, notice in verse 11 and 12, the word divorce is used. And then another, that's another word. And then in verse 13... Send away. The same word as divorce. And then back to verse 15, we find this leaves or separates. So the reason I bring that out is I think these two verbs are probably speaking of the same thing, but we like to teach separation versus divorce because it's difficult. But here's what I think is happening. In the Greco-Roman culture, divorce was legalized in some ways. In some ways, people just walked away from their marriage. Sometimes you could, you could have a certification of divorce, and other times you just left the person. And so divorce was sometimes legally recognized, and sometimes it's just mutual separation, and you just went on with life, and nobody cared. So my point here is, I think these words are not as distinct as we may, be, may think them to be. The Net Bible, which was a Bible that was put out, what, 15, 20 years ago? Um, very good translation not, not a very common translation to see, but the guys that worked on it did a very good job on it. They just tr- translate all those words all throughout their divorce. See, they see this as Paul saying, do not divorce one another. In the Jewish world, men controlled this, right? Men, and that's why we see this in Matthew 19 and, and Mark 10 where God is talking to men there. It, they, they controlled these things. But when you get to the Greco-Roman world, women could divorce their husbands. They had power now in this very, this very liberal world that they were living in. And, and, and now they're being taught by these Corinth women that they could gain this spiritual superiority. And so now Paul says, look, women, don't leave, don't separate, don't divorce your husband. And again, Paul is encouraging these women as they are because... To stay as they are because there's no spiritual gain because you think if I can get rid of this man, I can be more spiritual. Now look at verse 11 with me. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Well, here's just another strong appeal not to divorce as believers. He's going to deal with a wife and, or, or a spouse and an unbeliever in the coming verses. I'll get into that next week. But here's a situation where he says, 
look, don't divorce, but in certain situations there is an exception. Notice he says, but if she does leave. There's, kind of, there's a present tense conditional clause here. Meaning, you're not leaving for this ascetic life, but there is, there is true times to leave, right? There's true times um, around adult, uh, adultery or abandonment. And I think what Paul is doing here is he said, no to divorce, but I'm not turning this into a law because there are times, there are, there are places where God, Jesus Christ, and the other apostles, as the Bible's written, were allowed for divorce. And some of you have gone through that painful situation. So he doesn't want to make it a law. The the Corinth people are trying to make it a law. Oh, you should separate or you should not have intimacy with your spouse and you'll be more spiritually high. Paul says, look, I'm not making this a law. And so he says, if the woman separates her divorce for reasons other than adultery and abandonment, she must continue to follow Paul's statement. Remain as you are. There are times where we've had people separate and and there's not abandonment, there's not adultery, but there's hard issues. There are difficult issues that are going on. And, the, and, and the, the teaching is remain as you are. Now, we believe Paul's speaking now more about general terms here, right? Not only just Corinth problems, but he's talking about things to us, right, that go on. So because Paul would not give an, an exception for divorce simply because they want it to be more spiritual... So now I think what he's saying here, and I I had to write this down as I worked through this. If a woman is to remain as she is and not divorce her husband, but if she were to disobey this directive, the divorce for some reason other than adultery and abandonment, she must remain as she is and not commit adultery by remarrying. And if she doesn't like her unmarital status, then she's to be reconciled to her husband. And that goes for the husband as well. Notice the end of the verse that the husband should not divorce his wife. So what's true of the wife is true of the husband. So to me, it seems that the Corinth situation, the problem was this ascetic women wanting to live away from their husbands, not wanting to have relationships. Paul's been given instruction on that. But now he says, listen, if you want to separate in some way, you're not free to marry. Now, these are terms that are very difficult. Elders have to work through this all the time, where there's a situation, and we have to make a biblical judgment from this text and many others whether that person is free to marry or not marry. It's a hard one. Because their experience often is so powerful. And this is where we have to trust God's word over experience. Let me close with just point four, because... I, I know there's a lot of different situations that I want to address here. First of all, the world, the point is the effects of immorality and divorce, singleness and marriage on the church. See, the world's embraced divorce with no restrictions. And unfortunately, the modern church is following the world's norm. And so this text is, 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 is brought quite a bit of contention within the modern church because So people see Paul and Jesus' words. They study these words, and then they go study Jesus' words, and they go, oh, that's just too strict. That's too strict. It's too harsh. There's got to be another way around this. Others turn to this text, and they are so hard-lined that there's no room for divorced people in their church. So this is where we have to get down and work hard to understand what these texts mean. I think both Jesus and Paul, and here's the key, 
are speaking clearly to the unity and oneness that God has designed for marriage. It's so important to God that we maintain as, as best we can, as far as we can, with all the strength he'll supply, maintain unity, unity and oneness. Now, when we say that, people go, oh, you're just against divorce. You, want, you don't want to accept any of that. No, no. We understand adultery and abandonment is clearly taught. But we want to be, be absolutely clear here. God is for unity and oneness in our marriages, in our homes, and in our church. That's what he's for. And so we see this, this, this push of love of God into our lives, right? And this love of God creates priorities in our marriage that, that become stronger than the difficulties. And that's where it breaks down. We, fought, we stop discipling one another. We stop growing together in Christ. And so now our experiences are, are so difficult. But when we turn back to the word of God, this unity and oneness starts to build in our marriages again and, and, re, and rekindles both intimacy and love for each other. See, that's what Paul's after. And so he says, don't, don't try to pursue another relationship. I think clearly... The Bible teaches there is a biblical divorce. I think it's kind of an oxymoron. It seems kind of funny. But God's provided protection. And if you're in a relationship that, where somebody has been unfaithful and you've tried and tried, or there's an abusive relationship, we, we, we don't want you, first of all, in an abusive relationship. We want to be very quickly involved in that. God's made, he's provided protection for that. But we must remember that, that the setting of divorce was because of this ascetic life that was being taught here. And I think that's where some people misinterpret this passage. And for those who are seeking to divorce for any other reason than, than the biblical ex, ex, uh, teaching of adultery and abandonment, Paul's commanding that person you are to remain unmarried. And if you can't take that and you want to remarry, go be reconciled with your spouse. The Bible is not giving you an open door to leave your spouse because you don't like them. The Bible is trying to lead you back to reconciliation. That's what he does. This is what the, the Lord wants. See, this truth gives us an understanding that as long as the spouse remains unmarried, look, there's hope for reconciliation. And so even when we have to separate people, the hope we're holding on, we're, we're holding on for, for reconciliation because that's the priority of the Bible. Now, all this is done because divorce is devastating, isn't it? Uh, if I ask the question, I'm not going to. Probably every one of us have been touched by divorce in some way or another. In some, some situation or another. And you know it affects the entire family. It causes great emotional difficulty, certainly spiritual harm. It brings to wives, husbands, children, relatives, and friends. And because separation and divorce is so harmful, God says he hates divorce, right? And he's speaking in such a large term because it's, it's about Israel and how they have adulterated and played the harlot against him. And he expresses his love and disdain for what's gone on. And he says, I hate divorce. And Christians have to listen to this. This is not what God wants. And so often, think about this. When divorces go through, we've had some in our families. 
The whole family engages. People who are walking with God try to get in and try to help and, and stop this thing. But, and I think that's a good teaching because that's what the church should do. You think about the church where members were interconnected together. Our lives are woven together because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So there's a responsibility on those of us who are married that we would, we would battle on. We would seek biblical counsel. We would we live lives because the unity of the church is at stake. See, we have to see our marriages as greater than some of the struggles that they go through. And it's worth working through it. If Gina and I divorced, what would it do to this church? Do you think you're any different? God loves unity. He wants you to fight for your marriage. Fight for the glory of God in your marriage. Not give up on these things. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if, we are, we are one, if one member suffers, all the members suffer together. Now, look, when, when difficulties arise within marriage and our church body, we are to offer loving biblical counsel. That's what this church does. We have counselors who are on staff with pastors of counsel. Because we want to solve these things. And you say, well, Scott, I, I can't counsel. Well, then pray. Can you pray to an almighty God? Can, can you pray for that husband, for that wife, for the children, for the extended family? Can you pray for grace and mercy? Can you pray for repentance? Can you pray for the greatest of these is love? Can you pray that love would dominate? Can you pray that the love of Christ would cause repentance and forgiveness and healing and joy? Can you pray? Some of us know this. Right? You've had loved ones divorce. You've had loved ones in bitter battles, and it tears your heart out, doesn't it? And they won't listen to your counsel, but you pray because we have a God who is, who is, who is phenomenal, can do things we, we can't even imagine greater than what we ask or think, isn't it? I started the year out with a challenge to our church, Love Without Limits. So we need this challenge for the troubling times we're in, Right? But we need these challenges for these difficult texts. Stay in it. Love wins when it's done God's way. Whenever the church or an individual doesn't love, we're just a noisy gong and we say stupid things and we hurt people. Love. Love. It's the bride of Christ that deserves love. One last thought. If you're if you're in here and you're pursuing an unbiblical divorce, I beg you to stop. I beg you to stop. We encourage you to, to reconcile with God and repent. Turn from your sin. Confess it as sin. Tell God that you have unbiblical desires and you feel like acting on them. Tell God that. Because there's nothing coming but heartache if you let sin win. And then we encourage you we encourage you to be reconciled to your spouse. And you will say, Scott, it's not possible. Well, the Bible says to be right with all men as far as it pertains to you. Do everything you can. Next, there are some that are maybe contemplating divorce. So we encourage you to seek biblical counsel. Come to us. Come to the office and say, can I meet with a pastor? Can I meet with a counselor? I need some help. I don't want to do what God hates. Finally, I want to just talk to our singles to close. And I'm, I'm just going to, Hayward, we're not going to do a closing song because I'm late here. But 
I love our singles. And their life is not easy in this world. Everything on TV is directed to them to be immoral. Everything in their life is pushing that way outside of biblical instruction, the church, and their love for Jesus. So singles, I want to encourage you to seek discipleship that leads to contentment. You catch that? Seek discipleship that leads to contentment. We know your life can be difficult at times. But seek God's freedom. First of all, ask God to give you the freedom from desires that, that rob you of contentment. Ask him. He may give that to you. But if he doesn't give you that, that freedom from desiring to be married, I, I encourage you to live a life that is godly. Wait on the Lord. Pursue other singles. Be involved with godly singles. Form discipleship groups that seek to know, to, to encourage one another to be content with where God has you. Be open to the possibilities of, of singleness. Be open to the possibilities of the mission field. Be open to the possibilities of serving where, where maybe I can't because of my duties that I have as pastor and husband and father and all those things. Find ways to serve the Lord. Acknowledge him in all your ways. I promise you, he will lead you. Remain as you are. Don't try to gain a different position that is not what God wants you to gain. God will be honored. Will you stand with a closing benediction with me? My benediction this morning as we close comes right from the Bible. I read it last week. Listen and pray with me. Pray that God will grant you these things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked Love does not take into account wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Biblical love wins. Amen? We love you. You are dismissed.